Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing in our series entitled The Pursuit of Happiness, trying to learn from the Word of God, in particular the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, how to be happy. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, our destiny is sure, we are and we shall to the uttermost feast in the house of Zion, should we not be of all the people in the world the happiest, the merriest, the most joyful. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And forever started many days ago. So I really do want each and every one of you as individuals to be happy people. But I want us as a church as well to be a community of peace, of joy, of tranquility, of camaraderie, and of happiness. Amen? And I really do believe that if the Holy Spirit would continue and perhaps even more produce happiness in us as a community, we would stand out in this world. And isn't that what the city of of God, the new Jerusalem, the city upon a hill is supposed to do? Are we not to shine the light of good works and to be happy and to be joyful? Yes, amen. And I do believe it is not only possible, I believe that it is promised to you as you continue to walk with the Lord throughout your life. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, where we see Jesus laying out how to be happy. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. Now that word, as we saw last week, can and perhaps even should be translated happy. There's no English equivalent for this particular word. We have to just do the best that we can. And blessed is good, but you could also translate this happy. It refers not only to an objective happiness, like being prosperous, but a subjective happiness. That is, enjoying life, enjoying God on the inside, welling up from the heart, the abundant life, the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Amen? Last week we saw the gate of happiness. That's in verse Three right there. If you want to look real carefully at verse three, we saw that there is only one way, only one gate, only one entrance to happiness. No one has ever been happy truly, deeply, or long lastingly who didn't walk through the gate of happiness, which is poverty of spirit, right there in verse three. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we can't preach the whole sermon over again, but what it essentially means is that you recognize, you realize your utter dependency on Jesus Christ, that you are without Christ, destitute, poor, naked, blind, and without hope in this world, and you realize it, 
And that realization doesn't just stay there, but that realization drives you to Christ, drives you to open up the gate or the door of Christ and to walk in. Amen? No one is truly happy. No one begins to be happy. No one is ever going to be essentially happy unless by the poverty of spirit, they are driven to Christ. And we saw the analogy of that, a leper going to Christ to be healed. That leper said, I know that you are able to heal me, but are you willing to heal me? And Jesus said, I am willing. Amen. Jesus wants to heal us, not only of our external leprosies, but of our internal leprosy as well. He wants us to be living lives that are characterized by abundance and joy. Amen. But we have to go to him. That's first. That's first. But then after opening up the gate and walking through the gate of happiness, you put your feet on the path of happiness. Now, don't miss this. A gate is a one-time experience. It's something you, that happens and continues to happen. You are in the land that, was, uh, that you went through the gate into, but now you are on a path, and a path of happiness, which leads to more happiness. And as you move upward and inward, you can increase in happiness the closer you, you get to God, as we shall see. But when you enter into happiness through Christ... The path to happiness is right there in verse 4. It's, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen? You see, when, when you first go to Christ, when you say as the prodigal son, I will arise, and I will leave the pigsty, and I will go to my father. Amen? You remember that time? Some of you probably remember it. When you first go to Christ, you enter into a new relationship, not only with God, but with your own self and with your sin. You enter into a new power, resurrection power. You enter into a state of being that the Bible calls eternal life. It's not just eternal existence, it's eternal zoe life, not just biological life, but spiritual abundant resurrection life. You enter into a new status, a new state. It is as though you are walking through the pearly gates into a new kingdom, into a new city. You are now among the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And a lot of stuff begins to happen in your life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I want to show you this. <clears throat> the Bible says that the natural person, that is someone born in sin and without the Spirit of God and without Christ, this is one who does not yet have poverty of spirit, and their poverty of spirit has not driven them to Christ. They're just a natural person. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Right? Do you remember those days? You remember when you were a, quote, natural person without the Spirit of God, and you didn't accept what the Bible had to say. It confused you. It irritated you. It made you feel condemned, period. You remember those days, perhaps. But they cannot, they do not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. It's annoyances. Right? It's irritating. It's ignorant. Old-fashioned. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually, that is, Holy Spirit-empowered, discerned. You see, when you first go to Christ, 
One of the promises of Christ to those who trust in him is the gift of the Spirit of God. And he sends his Spirit from heaven into your life so that you have a new discernment. Would you look there at the screen or look at your Bible? Do you see one of the things that happens to you when you first become a Christian, when you first go to Christ, is you are endowed by the Spirit of God with a new discernment, a new perspective, new realizations, new desires, a new worldview. It's not necessarily um, fully developed at first, but you begin with a new discernment that over time becomes more and more developed by the Spirit of God. You can see here that you have a new understanding. Now you can accept the things of the Spirit of God, and they are no longer foolishness to you. They are now wise to you. They are the way to live, the way to be happy. And you understand them. You understand them. Before, you may have understood the grammar of the Bible, but now you truly do see, and you perceive, and you hear, and you listen. You have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen? If you are a Christian, you have this new Holy Spirit discernment. But also, look at John 14, verse 17. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot receive him. See, cannot receive him. They have not yet walked through the gate of poverty of spirit. They have not yet gone to Christ. And so they have not received the gift of Christ, which is the Spirit of God. The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him relationally. But you, who have gone to Christ, recognizing your poverty of spirit and your utter helplessness in this life, and have gone to Christ, you do know him, for he abides with you. That is not only you individually, but all of us corporately as well. The Holy Spirit of God dwells with us and is in us. Amen? If you don't have joy, you should have joy at that particular truth, that the Spirit of God is given to you as a Christian, and now not only do you have new Holy Spirit-empowered discernment, you need to grow in it, but it's there, it's yours, but you also have a new relationship with the Spirit of truth. See, He is called the Spirit of truth because He reveals the truth. He reveals what is real to you over the course of your life. He doesn't reveal it all to us immediately, amen, lest we all perish on the spot. But he does reveal truth to us. He illuminates our mind. He gives us eyes to see gradually over a period of time. So that as you walk through the gate of happiness, which is Christ, you now put your feet on the path of happiness, which is a life with the Spirit of God. It's called walking in the Spirit. It's called Walking in the light. Would you raise your hand if you've heard those expressions before? It's a life with the Spirit of God who is with you and who is in you. And as you gradually live your life, you grow and you mature and you come to know more truth and you have more discernment and you get closer to Him relationally. You're walking the path of happiness. But now, when those lights come on, you see more of God. Amen? And, and every day that you walk in the life, in the light, you can see and perceive more of God. Ideally, a mature Christian knows God more than an immature Christian. Knows not only about God more, but knows Him intimately, experientially in the heart more than a baby believer. They're more mature. 
they have more light. They have drawn closer to God, and God has drawn closer to them. See, God doesn't give us all of himself overnight. It's gradual as he unfolds his promises, gradually. And as you walk in the light, you learn more about God, more of his promises, more of his character. You learn that over a course of a lifetime, you really can trust him. Yeah, I mean, you know in your mind that he's a rock. But as you go through various trials and tribulations, you learn experientially deep down that he is a rock. Amen? Right? What did Job say? Job said, at first I had, I had heard of God, but now after having gone through that trial, I see God. So you can grow in your knowledge of God as the Spirit of God illuminates your life and illuminates your mind. You're walking in the Spirit. You're walking in truth. You're walking in the light. And you are coming to see more of God. But you also see more of yourself. I mean, anytime you turn the lights on, you see more, right? The good and the bad and the ugly, perhaps even. You see, I, I think you see on the good side of things, you see your purpose in life. Can you remember some of you who became Christians later in life? You remember how you went to work, what you thought of work and vocation and calling. Your life was perhaps uh, living for the weekend, or making just enough money so that you could enjoy certain pleasures. There was no higher noble goals. There was no calling, no real God divinely given vocation. But now that you are a Christian, you see that you have a purpose in life, that God has given you particular gifts that are for a, a particular niche in the kingdom of God. And isn't that wonderful to see? Yeah, that's wonderful to see. You see that with the light of the word of God given to you by the spirit of God. But not only do you see more of yourself in the good sense, you also do see more of the dirt and the grime and the, and the grit. You see those, you perceive those besetting sins that cling to you. You, you see that old man, you know, and, and, and that old man, you're, you hate him and you despise him. You're embarrassed of him. You're ashamed of him. But you do see that he keeps following you around. Right? You do see that he's got a little life left in him and he needs to be mortified every day. Like he's that nasty shadow you know, with spiders in his mouth and, and uh, cockroaches filling up his entire chest. He's a vulgar, leprous, nasty fella. And you see him, he's always right, right there. And, and then it's revealed to you as you become a Christian. Who here has been a Christian over a period of time and you realize just how capable of sin you are now and you never realized that before? Listen, Christ Church, there is not a single sin that hasn't in some degree been committed by one of us in here. I promise. And you might be surprised, but I assure you, it's true. There is not a single sin that hasn't been to some degree committed by at least one of us, if not all of us in some degree or another. And there is not a single sin that if we, don't, if we feed the old man and live in the old ways and no longer walk in the light but start to walk in the darkness, there is not a single sin without the help of Christ that we aren't capable of blowing our life up with. Amen? You don't necessarily realize that when you first become a Christian. But the more light you are given, the more you see God and the more you see your sin. Jesus uses a great analogy. He says that you begin to see the logs in your own eye. Right? Of course, you can see the specks in other people's eyes because you have the law of God and you have the Holy Spirit and you have some level of illumination. But to you, those are specks. But that sin in your eye really looks big, taking up your whole pupil. You have a log in your eye and you see it. And that log in your eye, once you truly see it, 
causes maybe some shame, you put that in Christ. You cast that to Christ. Maybe some embarrassment, you cast that to Christ. Maybe some regret, you say with Paul, I'm forgetting the things which are past and moving forward to the things which are beyond. And you feel guilt, but you, you, you claim the blood of Jesus Christ which has been shed to pay the penalty for your guilt and for your shame. You have all these feelings and, and you hate it and you detest it and you see it as an obstacle to your happiness because it's getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus who is the source of happiness. You just see that log right there. God is showing it to you. The spirit of truth is showing it to you. That's true of you, Brandon. The spirit of illumination is showing that to you, recognizing it in your mind. You're walking in the light, and there's a cockroach, and there's some mold, and there's some dirt in the corners. And that log in your eye causes tears. Has anyone here ever cried over their own sin? I'm sure that you have if you're a Christian, right? You... And the Bible calls that mourning, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning, lamenting over your sin. When the Spirit of God reveals to you your sin, and that produces in you a disgust, a sorrow, a despair, a mourning, that is what Jesus is referring to when he says, blessed are those who mourn. And when you mourn, Jesus has a word for you. When you mourn over your sin, and yes, Christians are comforted with all types of mourning. The the loss of a loved one. Mourning uh, a, a terminal illness. Mourning the difficulties and afflictions in this life. Yes, Christ is there to comfort you in those moments. But what he is, I do believe, talking about specifically here is mourning over your own sin. The reason I think that is because of the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't have time to get into it, to it, but... When you mourn over your sin, when you have fallen down on your knees in the middle of the night and thought, I am lost and damned in this world if I don't have Christ. When you mourn over your sin, Jesus says you are happy. Blessed are you. That's the path of happiness. That's the way to it. Keep at it. Keep at it. That's how to be happy. You want to be happy? Mourn over sin. You want to be more happy? Mourn more over sin. That's the path. You say, well, how can that be? That's counterintuitive, right? (laughs) Happy are those who are sad. Really? I mean, that's really counterintuitive. Blessed are the poor. That's counterintuitive. Happy are the sad. That's counterintuitive. But how can that be? Well, look at the verse. Look at verse 4. I'll show you how it can be. Because he says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? How? How is that possible? For they shall be comforted. That's why. Anyone who has been shown their sins, who has perhaps been shown the capability of their sinfulness, and God has many ways of revealing sin to you. Very oftentimes you can have that revealed to you when you fall into sin. Oh, I didn't realize I was that bad. Well, now you do. Mourn over your sin. When you recognize your sin because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you because you're walking in the light, walking with the Spirit, and you mourn over that sin, Jesus says you are blessed. You are happy. You're on the path, and I'm going to show you in a second why I call it a path. You are on the path of happiness. Keep at it. This is the way to life. This is the way to joy. Why? Because you shall be comforted. The word comfort here is the word, it is literally to come alongside 
It's the word paraclete. And if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. And basically what it is saying is that when you mourn over your sin, Jesus will meet you. James says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And when Jesus meets you in that moment, and you realize that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, that's happiness. That's it right there. That's the continuation of happiness. That's the way of happiness. If you suppress your sin, if you ignore your sin, if you excuse your sin, if you name it other names, if you blame shift, if you only lead it in self-loathing or in regret, if you don't mourn over the sin, Christ cannot comfort you and he will not comfort you. But if you truly mourn over your sin, Christ will be there for you. Amen? You see, it, it feels good when someone loves you and they speak positive and kind things to you, even if they don't know you, right? You, you, like that, you like that someone loves you, that they think you're wonderful, that they enjoy your company. That feels nice, amen? That's happy, that's okay. Right? But, but if they don't really know you, it, that love only reaches a certain threshold. But when someone loves you, and then they find out what you're really like, and they still love you, that's a friend. And Jesus can be that friend for you. It's in those moments where you, you not only read that, the, that God wants you to be happy in the Bible and believe it cognitively, but you can actually experience the happiness which comes from the experiential comfort of Jesus Christ where he wipes away your tears. You understand? You see, when you open up the gate of happiness and you go to Christ, you're putting your foot on a path of happiness, but you are walking into the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. And what are one of the aspects of the new Jerusalem? That is the place where he wipes away tears. It's a place of joy, not a place of sorrow. And you can experientially feel that. You can enjoy that in your life today. He can wipe away your tears one day he will wipe them away to the uttermost, but he can wipe them away even now so that you can experience happiness in the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's why you can be happy and sad over your sin at the very same time because Jesus is near to you. And Jesus says to you how much he loves you. You say, well, how does Jesus comfort you? Well, um, it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and it's seen in our text where it says comfort. That's the word paraclete. That's the name of the Holy Spirit or one of the names of the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter. He is the one who comes alongside. Jesus, the incarnate God-man, is in heaven, but he comes to you by the Spirit of Christ. Romans eight fifteen. you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom? We cry, Abba, Father. See, there is a cry which comes out of your mouth, which wells up from your heart. Well, when does that happen? When does the cry, Abba, Father, come out of the heart and out of the mouth? When does that happen? Look at verse 16. Well, the Spirit himself bears witness. That is, he testifies. He speaks to you. He tells you a message. 
And what is the message? He speaks to, the, to our spirit with our spirit. And here's the message, Christ Church, that we are children of God. And not only that, if you're a child, then you are an heir. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of the kingdom. So how it happens, I do believe, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but when you mourn over your sin and you mourn in the presence of Christ and you cast your cares on Christ and you claim the blood of Christ and you wrestle with him right, and you ask his forgiveness, he comes to you by his spirit and he tells you a message and the message is, I know your sin, but it is covered. You are my child. And you are my heir. And I delight in you. You are my son in whom I am well pleased in Christ. And to experience that in the heart is happiness. It is the path of happiness. And it is, I do believe, a birthright of all the children of God. All those who mourn over their sin. Amen? Amen. But we got to dig into this a little bit more because there are some counterfeits. We, there are some counterfeits. Uh, and and I'll, I'll say it this way. The Beatitudes, and, and we read through all of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. They are a package deal. It's not like some of us get to pick verse 3 and others of us pick verse 6 and we all have our, our specializations. right? No, it is a package deal. It is the way of the Christian life. It's the way of happiness. It's how to be happy. And you have to, in order to be happy, have all of them. Have all of them, right? To some degree. And to the degree you have all of them by the Spirit of God, you can experience happiness in this life. That's sort of the thesis of this whole sermon series. But what that means for us this morning is you have to mourn over your sin, but you also must be poor in spirit. Those two things must both be true in your heart or else you will engage in a type of mourning that is not evangelical gospel mourning. All right? let, me, let me try to illustrate that for you. Um, judgmentalism. What is judgmentalism? Well, judgmentalism, very common in churches, is when you are aware of other people's sins. And in fact, you might mourn over other people's sins. But because you don't have the poverty of spirit and you haven't yet perceived your own neediness and your own helplessness, their sins loom large in your mind and your sins you're totally blind to. You see, that is a type of mourning over sin where there's no poverty of spirit. So someone who mourns over sin, who does not have the poverty of spirit, one of the ways that manifests itself is that they're always mourning over other people's sins. And their own sins are, they're clueless to them. And that's what judgmentalism really is. Right? It's not wrong to notice other people's sins. We're supposed to tend one another. Amen? And of course, we see the sins in one another. We're not supposed to resort to biting and devouring and, and uh, holding everyone to an uh, scrupulous, perfect standard overnight. We're not supposed to be judgmental in that sense. But the heart of judgmentalism is a person who notices everyone else's sins but doesn't notice their own sin. So that they're more prone to jump down people's throats. They're more prone to um, exact a high standard that they don't even hold their self to. That's a mourning over sin that will not lead to happiness. A church like that will not be happy. 
It will not be a city on a hill. It will not be a happy and delightful place to be. It will be a place of strife and contention and biting and devouring. Amen? Amen. But there's, there is another sense of mourning over sin where you're not necessarily condemning everyone and jumping down everyone's throat over their active sins. It's that you don't have poverty of spirit, and so you're just constantly offended by everyone. That perpetual touchiness, that perpetual offense, perpetually reading into everything and thinking the worst of others, that is a sort of victim level of judgmentalism. It's judgmentalism. It's just uh, utilizing your victimhood as a type of self-righteousness, as a club against other people. A, A church filled with touchy, offended people and a church filled with condemning, judgmental people that notices other people's sins but not their own, that's not a happy place. Who wants to live there? Not me. No, indeed. Not me. I want to be in a church where, yes, we do notice other people's sins, but our sins are way bigger and we're way more concerned with our own sin than with others. The logs need to be dealt with first and mostly. Then you get to the specs. Amen. And the only way that's possible is if you not only mourn over your own sin, but you have poverty of spirit, recognizing that without Christ, you're nothing also. Amen. Another thing, though, if you mourn over your sin, and you don't give it to Christ, all that's going to lead to is self-pity, self-loathing, even self-harm, suicidal thoughts, eating disorders. If you don't cast your cares on Christ, then you cannot be happy. What I'm not saying to you is to recognize theologically that you have sinned, I'm saying recognize that you have sinned by the Spirit of God and give that sin to Christ. You must actively confess it to Christ. Plunge it into the caring and merciful lap of Christ. If you just hold on to that yourself and condemn yourself, all that is is pride and self-loathing. That's not mourning over sin and you will not be happy. A church that's perpetually beating itself up over its sins and its failings, that is not a happy place to be. But we recognize our own sin in order that we can plunge it into the lap of Christ. Amen? Judas knew that he had sinned. He says, I have shed innocent blood. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't go to Christ for healing. He didn't go to Christ for forgiveness. Peter sinned in much the same way that Judas did. But what was the difference between Peter and Judas? Peter went to Christ. And was comforted by Christ. That's the path to happiness. Not just recognizing your sin, but then casting it upon the mercy of Christ. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, 24, we see another counterfeit. We're almost done here. We're going to go through just a few counterfeits. We see that Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. You see, I have sinned. Amen. Great, Saul. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Okay, he's recognized it to some extent. But here's where you note that this is a counterfeit. This is more of a religious, churchy mourning over sin and not a true gospel mourning over sin. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Not because I am capable of sin. Not because I need a savior. But because I was tempted. Because they made me do it. One sure sign that your mourning over sin will not lead to happiness is if you're blaming everyone but yourself. Own it. Blame yourself and then cast it upon the mercies of Christ. Cain, he mourned over sin as well. But what did Cain say? Cain said, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Cain was like many of our children, crying not because they sinned against God, but because they're about to get a spanking. 
No, mourning over sin has to be more than just crying over the consequences. Mourning over sin is weeping and crying and lamenting over the fact that we have put an obstacle between us and Christ. An obstacle to our own fulfillment and an obstacle to our own happiness. And of course, abstract mourning is not what we're talking about. Many people go to church and they've been to church and they've read the theology books perhaps and they know that yes, theologically and generally speaking, theoretically, I am a sinner. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is mourning over the actual sins that you have actually committed with the names associated with them and the times and the dates those are the, that is how we mourn over sin. Not just generally that we are sinners. Yes, that's generally true, and Christ saves us from our nature as well. But we must mourn over our particular sins, giving them to Christ. That's how to be happy. And not just regret. That's the last one. The prodigal son didn't just live in regret and wallow in the mire the rest of his life. He said, recognizing his sin, recognizing what he had done, he said, I will arise and I will go to my father. That's mourning over sin. And what did the father say to him? Welcome. Opened up his arms to him, gave him the ring, gave him the robe, slayed the fatted calf for him. And Jesus will do that for you as well. I think, I want to say this, there are probably people sitting here today who believe perhaps that it's too late to be happy. That's regret. Jesus Christ is God. He can do for you things you never have ever imagined, and he can do them in the snap of a finger. It is never too late for you to start being happy. It doesn't matter how old you are, and it doesn't matter how grievously you've sinned. The path from here on out could be not one of misery and despair and regret. It could be a path that leads to ever-increasing happiness and joy through the comfort of Jesus Christ. But you must... Mourn over the actual sins that you committed them, naming them and confessing them and give them to Christ if you're going to experience that happiness. Don't believe the lie that you're too big of a sinner or that it's too late for you. Don't live in that self-loathing and regret, but cast your cares on Christ. Amen, Christ Church. David said, or Solomon said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy and comfort and joy, and all that God promises us in this life. Amen. Let's all stand as the musicians come forward. As I pray, perhaps you need to take this moment to mention your sins to Jesus. Perhaps your emotions are not in alignment with his law, and you should be grieved over your sins, but you simply don't care that much. Ask him to help you align your emotions with reality. You can ask that as well. Let's pray. Father... We do want to be happy in you. We want to enjoy you. We want to experience the joy of our salvation and to experience that abundant life that you've promised us. And we know, Father, that that is only possible as we continue to root out the remaining sins that cling to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to do that. And as we go to you, we ask for your comfort by your spirit. In Jesus Christ's name and all who agree, would you say amen? Amen. amen.